Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkshire, host, and our guest is Mark Turin, an associate research scientist at Yale University and director of the Digital Himalaya Project and World Oral Literature Project. Professor Turin is an anthropologist and a linguist. His scholarly focus is on the Himalayan region, in particular Nepal, northern India, Bhutan, and cultural Tibet. Professor Turin's research interests include the documentation of endangered languages and mapping global cultural diversity, language policy and the role of native tongue instruction in education, and issues relating to the electronic access and ownership of anthropological materials from ethnographic museums. Today we talk with him about his involvement in the World Oral Literature Project. Welcome, Professor Turin. I'm delighted to be here. Let's begin with an overview of your project. Tell us about it. The project was established in January 2009, based at the University of Cambridge, where I work, as a partnership between anthropologists, linguists, community members, and people involved in collections, mm -hmm. archivists and librarians, and people in museums, as an urgent global initiative to come together and work to preserve, protect, document, and then disseminate these incredibly diverse forms of oral tradition, oral literature that exists around the world. How did you become involved? Well, I've been working in the Himalayas for almost 20 years now, from 1991 onwards, mm -hmm. um, as an anthropologist and a linguist. I've been working particularly with two ethnic groups and their languages. Nepal is a country of 27 million people, mm -hmm. but home to about 106 languages. Wow. Incredible linguistic diversity. Mm -hmm from four different language families. In fact, the Himalayan belt is really a kind of mega center of diversity in all senses, ecological, environmental, cultural, linguistic. So my own work has been predicated really on a deep understanding and appreciation of the linguistic forms that, that make people um, who they are and give them a kind of cultural attachment to their own identity. I should add that of the world's 6,500 languages, probably up to half are endangered. Mm -hmm. Wow. And most of those languages themselves are also oral, primarily transmitted orally. So we have to think about most of the world's linguistic and cultural diversity being transmitted by word of mouth. And what are the goals of the project? The project is doing a number of things to support both communities and also careful documentation projects. I like to use the words collect, protect, and connect mm -hmm. to describe a little bit what we do. Collection is not the acquisition in a kind of colonial or acquisitive manner of materials, but rather the careful partnering with people who have collections of oral literature, of cultural traditions, epic poetry, songs, myths, mm -hmm. whether they be on hard disk, on tape recorder, and thinking about how those collections might best be preserved protected so that they will also be able to transmit to the next generation mm -hmm. and then also to disseminate those when appropriate online in print on air so we're building collections on and offline mm -hmm. of these incredible oral traditions we're also running training workshops for community members and scholars to come together to come up with the best practices about how to document carefully we run a publications program occasional papers that we print as well as a, a partnership now with a Cambridge-based publisher the mm -hmm. open book publishers to try and disseminate materials like this online and also we give out grants perhaps the most important thing we do is give out small grants stimulus grants seed corn money mm -hmm. to particularly community members uh, involved in documentation projects we've given out 
18 grants now, and we have collections from 30 different countries on our website. Let's talk a little bit about the work you are doing to capture these um, oral cultures, and then I'd also like to talk a little bit about um, some cultures that perhaps have been lost forever. So uh, do you actually send people out into the world to try and collect this information? Um, partly, and then also I guess it's communities coming to you looking for money to help um, uh, document the, the oral cultures as well? That's quite right. Um, I don't believe that it's a good model to send people out from the West you know, okay. to go and collect documents. I think the partnerships are what we're trying to support. Okay. There are lots of grants out there for university-based scholars mm -hmm. in the US, the UK and Europe to apply for money for field work. Okay. We're interested in the people who fall through those gaps. They can't apply, let's say, to the National Science Foundation mm -hmm. or to the British Academy because they don't adhere or they're not part of any national university in their own home country. We believe that it's the elegant partnerships that we can support by which maybe foreign scholars are working deeply in association with the community. The community want to do something. They have a cultural center. Mm -hmm. There is a local oral knowledge holder who may be eager to share their knowledge and have it documented. Okay. And that triangulation of research between maybe a foreign scholar who provides support, training, resources, mm -hmm. a local community who are actively engaged, and also people in the field who have the knowledge they want to share. That's okay. what we're trying to support. All right, excellent. Let's, can you give us a specific example of something um, recently that you've worked on? We've um, worked a lot in Asia, okay. um, in India, Nepal, and also cultural Tibet and parts mm -hmm. of China, partly because many of the board members of the project have research areas and interests there. Sure. So we've supported a project um, in central India whereby a community member wanted to do work, didn't have the technology themselves to, to actually do careful documentation, got some training through our project, got a small grant, and is working with a local anthropologist. And they are collecting amazing stories about a, a, a performance of sort of snake worship mm -hmm. um, that lasts all night long. And they have been committing that material to our website, also publishing through us. So it's a kind of stimulus grant to support people who are doing great work, who otherwise might not get the access. Okay. And let's be clear, by oral culture, what do you mean by that? Okay. Well, that's a very nice question in a way, and let's make it more complex by saying okay. oral literature. Okay. It's a difficult term, it doesn't trip off the tongue, but also it's a term that's, I think, due for some rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. We have to realize that most of the world's, world's cultures are transmitted orally, mm -hmm. and languages are not just about words and grammar, but they're about the vehicles for the transmission of cultural knowledge. Mm -hmm. Oral literature and oral culture encompass all those forms of verbal art, that if you don't have a writing system, if you don't have a traditionally um, developed writing system, perhaps, where you would commit your knowledge and your history to, to paper, mm -hmm. then it's all encoded orally. So songs, poetry, proverbs, trickster rhymes, epic poetry, and all kinds of genres of oral performance. And those things can relate to the environment, to agriculture, to history and knowledge. Mm -hmm. I've worked very closely with shamans in the Himalayas, in Nepal in particular, who really are the repositories of all knowledge about the community, mm -hmm. but also about the past. So how do you capture um, that information? Do you videotape it? Do you record it? All of the above? One of the most exciting things that's happening, I think, is the revolution in access mm -hmm. to internet technology and generally digital technology. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, of course, globalization and whatever that may be, may be one of the processes that is eroding the diversity of human cultural expressions around the world. We think you know, all the time about people on the fringes, on the margins, being sort of pushed to the sides further. Mm -hmm. At the same time, fairly cheap air travel, uh, better communications through Skype and email and internet mean that people have access for the first time to quite affordable 
digital technology. One of the things that we've seen uh, communities interested in is not having to commit their oral knowledge to print, which can somehow lock it down into one genre and perhaps even ossify it and make it difficult to transmit again. So digital technology, video as you say, and audio recording is a very important part of what we're doing. It allows three or four different performances to live in parallel and not one of them to be committed as standard. Okay. Are there um, oral cultures today that are endangered of, of going away forever? And once they do go away, is, is it possible to bring them back somehow? Many of the world's oral cultures and the languages that convey them mm -hmm. are endangered and at risk. Whether it's possible to bring them back is a much more complex question. Okay. I'm sorry, let me interrupt. And they're endangered because the, the people are dying off and, and how, why are they endangered There are exactly? many reasons for <laughs> okay. languages to be endangered and then the cultures that are associated with them. Most languages become endangered because the speakers themselves transition to speaking another language. I they see. move out okay. of their tribal or regional or ethnic language mm -hmm. into the, maybe more a national or international language. Another thing that does happen is the communities themselves can be completely wiped out, whether it be through war, famine, migration, or natural disasters. And we saw that during the tsunami when okay. small communities were completely destroyed. Wow. At the same time, sometimes languages can bounce back. Okay. There's a wonderful story, actually, of a, of a project in the U.S. working in Oklahoma with the Miami tribe who have kind of reclaimed and revitalized language that probably was on the cusp of disappearance. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that it's for scholars to revive languages or save them. That's not really a term that we should use. It is, however, communities who save languages and support their own transmission. And scholars can partner with them and work with them to make sure those stories succeed. There are all the time stories of languages and cultures disappearing without record, vanishing voices. Last year, the language Bo, which is spoken on the Andaman Islands, disappeared when the last speaker died. There's a language in Nepal by the name of Kusunda, which may have a couple of speakers left, but essentially transmission, where you still have children who speak it, has completely ceased. Mm -hmm. So those languages really are on their last legs. And have, has the project done any work with those two examples? In fact, not those two languages, but we are supporting a scholar, a senior Indian academic, who's coming to give a lecture mm -hmm. about one of those languages. She's worked for the last 20 years in that community. What are some of the greatest challenges that the project faces? There are many challenges. There are logistical challenges in terms of deploying um, our resources and our knowledge appropriately in the field. Many of the places that we work are places of political turmoil and strife. They can be very remote, two or three days walk from a road, so communications can be difficult. Um, I think another challenge is really telling the story to an audience of people who are interested. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm always surprised by how many people react to the story of endangered languages. Um, a kind of neo-Darwinian logic, oh well, if people aren't using them, just let them die, mm -hmm. is often invoked. But those very same people who are against the documentation of, let's say, endangered culture, and endangered language, um, are interested in their local church, an old building, they want to restore that. They may be very concerned by global biodiversity and some of the endangered species that we know about on the planet. So I think we have a, a mission, really, to connect with a wider audience of practice, often outside of the universities, as much as inside. People who are committed to this kind of work mm -hmm. need the support and have unique collections they want to share. Why is it important that we not let these languages die off? Why should we care? I mean, to your point. I grew up multilingual. Uh, my mother is Dutch and my father was Italian. So I grew up already speaking a number of languages. I think multilingualism 
has been the norm for most of the world mm -hmm. over most of history. And monolingualism, namely speaking one language, and increasingly that's something like English, let's say, uh, is a historical aberration. It hasn't been the case for most people over most of history that they speak one sole language. I believe that making sense of, understanding and appreciating our cultural and linguistic diversity is part of what makes us human. In fact, some people would argue that language, the potential for language and our ability to speak it, children learn it without even trying, is one of the defining features of our humanity. One of my colleagues said that it would be an absolute disaster if linguistics went down as one of the only disciplines in science to preside over the demise of its own subject matter and do nothing. We have to act. Very good. Thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. For more information about Professor Turin and his research, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.